Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This is Corey Willis with PBI, and you're listening to the Diesel Podcast. I'm Adam Blattenberg from Diesel World. This is Dan, owner of Dan's Diesel Performance. I'm Braden Fleece, and you're listening to the Diesel Podcast. What is going on, Diesel Nation? We're excited to have you guys with us today. In this episode, I'm really looking forward to. This one, you know, a week or two ago, we asked you guys, hey, what should, what should we ask an attorney that specializes in emissions, specifically with the diesel side of it? What should we ask him? And we got hundreds of messages and between you know, comments on YouTube, Instagram direct messages, emails, and there's, there's some of them I can group together when I chat with them and ask them these questions. There's other others that are very specific, and we're not going to have the time to be able to ask 300 or 400 questions, but we're going to do our best to be able to cover what you guys wanted to know. And a lot of it is, how does this affect me? How does this affect my business? What can I do? What can't I do? What does this mean? What did the EPA, the EPA do or say? Why did it change the industry quickly as far as in the public's eye? And what does this mean for the future? You're not going to hear an episode like this or any of the ones that we've done on this topic anywhere else. And we feel a tremendous amount of responsibility and a duty to you guys as our audience to be able to provide you with facts and information. So this isn't a what if podcast. This is going to be something that's factually based. It's going to be informational. And we... We need to do that because there's so much misinformation out there and there's panic and there's just so many topics. It's hard for one person to understand. That's why we're having these different guests on to show different sides of it. So we want to encourage you guys, wherever you hear this episode, if it's on YouTube or iTunes or you see it on social media as a share and there's a question you have, keep sending them. We're not stopping this series. We're, we're going to be continuing to get different perspectives on. We're going to be talking about products. We're t- going to talk about racing. There's so much that's still left to, to talk about. So we don't want you guys to think, hey, just because this episode's done, we're on to something else. No, this is major news, and it's going to shape the future of what we can do with our trucks, what kind of trucks are going to be you know, on the road in the future, what motorsports is going to look like. So we wanted to thank you guys first for the feedback, and then to encourage you guys to keep keep sending us messages. All right, let's get to the podcast with Stuart Cables and talking about diesel emissions. Stuart, welcome to the Diesel Podcast. I'm excited to chat with you today. We've we've uh, asked our audience for a ton of emissions questions, and you're the first attorney we've had on the Diesel Podcast, so we're excited to uh, kind of rattle off some some emission stuff and and just learn more about what's going on and, and just you know get some more facts about the situation and and what this all means for the industry. Hey, Patrick. Uh, thanks for the introduction. I appreciate it. And um, I'm excited to be here. I've never done a podcast before, so uh, this will be my first time. I hope I do okay. But um, I know that there's a lot of discussion and a lot of information going back and forth about emissions and compliance efforts and things like that going on with the uh, federal government around the country. So 
Um, I've been involved with a lot of those kinds of cases and those kinds of discussions, and I'm, I'm happy to be here and happy to talk about whatever you want. And, you know, the, one of the things, too, is, is you're a diesel truck owner and you've been one for a long time. So you understand, you know, from the enthusiast perspective or the daily driver perspective, like you know, what these trucks do and how important they are, you know, to a lifestyle. And so it's cool to be able to to chat with you where you have that background and then also jump into this this other topic. Yeah, I have a uh, 2004 and a half Duramax. I uh, got it uh, more than 10 years ago, and I've been, um, you know, consistently improving it and adding parts on uh, that that uh, help its performance and help the way that it drives. And so um, part of the reason that I got a Duramax uh, diesel, besides the fact that I think that they're cool, is because I really wanted to understand uh, on a personal level how the parts worked. And you know, putting those parts on my truck has helped me understand drivability issues. It's helped me understand emissions issues. And it's also helped me understand um, exactly what's going on with the vehicles so that I can talk about it from a personal perspective as opposed to just as a lawyer who, you know, drives around in a in a BMW or something like that. That's where, that's where I see, you know, this topic, especially merging together where, you, know, you have that background and you've had the, the truck and have done things to it, but also how it transitions into what you do. And I, I wanted to have you, you chat with us and our audience about, you know, your background as far as dealing with these, with emissions and working with, with clients and just, so, so we have some background, understand, you know, what, what kind of experience you have with it and, and the things that, that you face and have helped people with. Yeah. So I'll give you guys a brief rundown of my career um, with, as it pertains to the diesel performance industry. First of all, um, I started my own law firm back in 2008, shortly after I graduated from law school. And the reason I did that is because I was working on essentially a full-time basis for ATS diesel which is local to, to um, my area of Colorado, the, the Denver area. And at that time, in 2007, 2008, when I started working for Deep, uh, ATS, the enforcement efforts were just getting started when it came to the industry and sort of like the emissions compliant, compliance stuff. And as most people know, they started out most aggressively in California and then they sort of switched onto more of a national focus. So in the very beginning, Clint Cannon, owner of ATS, as I'm sure many people know, and I traveled around the country specifically to California and then uh, various other places to check out the new rules that were being issued both by the California Air Resources Board, which I'll refer to in this in this discussion as CARB, and also the um, national efforts, which are the EPA. And that also involved going to SEMA every year, sitting in on a bunch of the emissions and compliance uh, meetings that they had there. And then it, it sort of transitioned into the enforcement efforts by California and the EPA being started, and letters being sent out, violations being issued, and because I had the foundation of going to those initial meetings 
in the state of California and then going to the SEMA meetings, I had established a, a base of knowledge about what the regulations actually said in order to represent clients around the country as it pertained to the enforcement efforts that the EPA and the state of California were starting to issue. So I've been working in this industry and specifically with the client, the, um, the compliance regulations from the very beginning. So I started out doing the stuff in California and then I moved on to the more recent focus, which is the national level. It's really interesting is there can be a perception that all of this is new, you know, like what, you know, what, what just happened or, or what the EPA released and even things over the last couple of years is new, but it's not, as you just mentioned, it's been going on for 10 years, give or take a little bit. And I think that's a really important part that we should touch on is I think the general public in a way has been caught off guard because they're seeing things in a more public way now. But as far as the industry or companies themselves, you've been working on this for quite a long time. Yes, I have. So I'll, I'll um, tell you a couple things on that. First is when I went to the SEMA um, emissions compliance meeting in 2009, the EPA was there. And the EPA was already beginning to start their enforcement efforts at that time. Uh, the state of California was also there. So the, this has been on the EPA radar for a long time. And it's been on the EPA radar as a source of uh, uh, issue with regard to compliance with the Clean Air Act. And the Clean Air Act is a national piece of legislation that was enacted in 1963 and the thing that I think that the listeners to your podcast should know about the Clean Air Act is that it is a very powerful law, and it is a very widespread, wide-reaching law that touches and concerns every aspect of American life. And that means everyone from your wife who gets into her Honda Accord to take her kids to school all the way up to the OEM manufacturers like Ford, Chevy, um, or GM, I should say, uh, Dodge, and the, the international companies that are selling cars in the United States. And it has to do with things that don't have to do with the diesel industry at all. It has to do with emissions that pertain to ExxonMobil uh, drilling for oil, in the Gulf of Mexico. It has to do with companies that anything that has to do with a motor or anything that has to do with an internal combustion engine, whether it's stationary or mobile, has to do with the Clean Air Act. And the way that the legislation was written and modified all the way back in the 60s, 70s, 80s was 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 created to give the federal government a tremendous amount of oversight and power when it came to creating rules to protect, in their mind, the quality of the air in the United States, and also to punish violators who they believe, whether it's a big, gigantic multinational company or just a single user of a vehicle all the way down the line, 
anybody that they believe is negatively affecting the air quality in the U.S. So one myth that seems to be pretty pervasive that I've seen over the course of years representing companies in this industry is, does the federal government or does the EPA actually have the power to do what they're doing, which means potential civil violations, criminal violations, things like that, and the reality is that they do. And so that's something that I wanted to address with the listeners at the beginning of the podcast, which is, you know, can the federal government come in and tell me what to do? The way that the law is written, the answer to that question is yes. That's a very, very important point because it's, I, I, I think we all have, as far as enthusiasts and, and truck owners and, and, you know, not being involved in it, say the way you are or the way some manufacturers are, is we don't, we didn't know that. And we may have heard of the Clean Air Act and we may have heard stories of smog in the 60s and 70s and 80s in big cities, but we, we, we haven't until now, until you coming on it and explaining it that way. And that's what we wanted to do is provide the basis for what is this? You know, we hear the Clean Air Act and, um, you know, we've had some shop owners on to talk about it or gotten questions from just individual truck owners. Why is this going on? Can they really do this? And that's, that's very sobering, but it's, it's a fact. And that's, I think it's a great point for us to start on this podcast, say, okay, that's what it is. And it's been like that for 50 years. Now let's go through some of these other things, you know, that, that people are facing. And it kind of leads into the next part, which, and we've heard about the EPA letter. And I know you have more specifics let, on it. Let me interrupt you, uh, and I apologize in advance just briefly. The reason that we're dealing with the EPA, and this is relevant to what I just said, the reason that this industry is dealing with the EPA is the EPA is the branch of the federal government which is in charge of enforcing the Clean Air Act. So that's important for everyone to know that the EPA, the federal government, whatever administration is in power at that time are all tied together, but the EPA is sort of the front person or the agency which is in charge of dealing with the enforcement of the Clean Air Act. So again, sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to interject that before we got any, any further. That's a, that's a really, that's a, that's a really good point because we, you know, like I overlook the EPA in a sense, but really that was one of the questions is how can, why is EPA doing this? And we needed to connect that dot between the Clean Air Act and the EPA being the enforcement agency of it. And then as we get towards, you know, the letter or, or what happened, I wanted you to explain from your perspective, what recently did they release or say they were going to do that sort of brought all this into the public view? Okay, so um, that's a great question, Patrick. And there's been some changes over the course of the last, I want to say, year or two, depending on how you look at it, that have ramped up enforcement at the EPA. And I want to be clear, going all the way back to 2008 or 2009, the EPA has been enforcing violations of the Clean Air Act. And they have also been taking a close look at the diesel performance industry in order to determine whether or not they think that there's violators in that industry. So enforcement in general in our industry 
and I say our industry because I've been in this industry so long, I honestly feel like I am uh, part of this industry. So uh, it's almost like a personal thing with me. I've got so many great friends and great clients, including you, Patrick, who um, I've worked for over the years who are in this industry. So I consider this to be my industry. Um, anyway, in our industry, there's always been enforcement, all the way back to 2008, 2009, really when they started to put the DPFs on the vehicles in the 2007 and a half range. And that includes all diesel vehicles from Volkswagen Golf all the way up to um, stationary equipment, right? Um, so there's been enforcement ever since then. But recently, in June of this year, the EPA came out with what they call a National Compliance Initiative. And I will say NCI for short for the purposes of our call because people just call it an NCI. And that letter was actually a memo that was internal in EPA that was uh, published to the public on the EPA website. That NCI identified six specific areas where the EPA believed that they could increase enforcement efforts to protect the air quality and the water quality, three of those pertain to the Clean Water Act, um, to protect the water quality in the United States. And one of those initiatives that the EPA identified was the aftermarket industry for diesel vehicles and diesel performance. And the reason that they, that the administration, that the EPA ramped up enforcement in that area, I think is twofold. The first reason is I think that um, in the mind of the EPA, taking a DPF and removing it from a vehicle or taking an EGR and removing it from a vehicle specifically, and then creating programming for that vehicle in order to sort of fool the vehicle into thinking that that DPF was still there, amounted to a very blatant violation of the Clean Air Act and something that the EPA thought that, you know, people in our industry were sort of like flaunting their their violation, almost in a, a very blatant way. So that was the, the first reason that I think that they created this NCI. The second reason that I, that I think that they created the NCI is because there is a very, very strong marketing presence in our industry for people who are selling these products that the EPA considers to be violating products. And when I say strong presence, what I mean is the diesel industry is a very close-knit group, and even if you're a competitor of another company within that group, that industry, you're still generally friendly, and you still generally are all trying to achieve the same goal, which is to have fun, race your trucks, create more power, and, you know, generally make money, <laughs> really is what it comes down to. And so what EPA has done as part of this, as, as their previous enforcement efforts, of course, but also as part of their national compliance initiative, is they have said, okay, we're going to crack down on these specific types of products in this specific industry because the marketing presence 
both on social media and in normal marketing channels is so strong that the reach that it has is tremendous. And what it's done is it's almost worked too well in the sense that it has drawn the attention of the EPA. And now EPA decided, okay, these guys in our mind are violators and we are going to turn around and we're going to, um, you know, initiate what we call enforcement initiatives. So um, that I think is why they created the NCI for our industry. And I think it's really fundamentally a result of such incredibly effective marketing. So that was a question that someone had, had asked us about the focus of it. And I think in that NCI, they called it aftermarket defeat devices. I could be wrong, but I, I kind of remember that phrase a little bit. And so I just wanted to ask that, that listener's question is, so it, it's very focused on, say, this, this year range and these certain types of products for these trucks is really what the focus is because, as you mentioned, it was so blatant and then marketed really well for quite a long time that it's just like right there in their face. Right. And I, I would I qualify that again of blatant in the mind of the EPA and the, um, the federal government. Um, I think that there's a lot of ways that we can use these products which don't violate the Clean Air Act, but um, I, I think that there's a lot of these products that do violate. And, and so, you know, they're, the EPA has really de decided to, you know, initiate these enforcement proceedings for that reason. So <clears throat> when we're talking about the specific um, scope, uh, to use a legal term, of the NCI, what the EPA is looking for is what we call low-hanging fruit, which means people that are selling certain types of products which are easily proven to be a violation of the Clean Air Act. And the reason that they want to do that is because they want to remove the um, risk of going to litigation, to actually going to court in order to get what they want, which is for people to stop selling these products. What they really want is not to find money, and that's another myth that's in the industry right now. This is not a money grab on behalf of the EPA or the federal government. It's not a way for them to increase revenues. If they wanted to increase revenues, what they would do is they would hire 200 lawyers for the EPA at $80,000 to $100,000 a year, and they would enforce on every single person in this industry because the fines are so high that they could generate money that way. The fines that I'm seeing in the industry are substantial, but they're nothing in comparison to what the EPA has the right to find a company under the Clean Air Act. What they really want, what the EPA really wants, deep down is for people to stop selling these products. And that's why when you see a settlement in this industry, you see what's called a consent agreement, which is where the company owner or an individual is giving their consent to stop selling these products so that the EPA doesn't have to worry about, they have a contract with the individual or the company and they don't have to worry about that company going out and selling more product. So that's what they really want. But to go back to your question, we're talking about defeat devices. And a defeat device in the eyes of the EPA is generally two things. It's an EGR delete, which removes the EGR from the vehicle. 
or which I believe, and Patrick, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that was somewhere in the 2004 timeframe that EGRs were mandated on diesels. Um, and then DPF deletes, which is the removal of the DPF from the vehicle, and then you put a different exhaust on it, okay? The reason they're focusing on, those, focusing on those defeat devices is because they're easy to enforce on. Under the Clean Air Act, anything that touches and concerns the fuel that's provided to the engine or the air that's provided to the engine or the air that's coming out the tailpipe is fair game. Anything that touches or concerns the emissions of the vehicle, which means air and fuel, is fair game. That goes all the way from intakes, fuel pumps, turbochargers, uh, any internal motor component, and then, of course, any emissions product that you would have on the vehicle itself. So the reason that that's important is because the National Compliance Initiative doesn't necessarily focus its enforcement effort on turbochargers or fuel pumps. It doesn't mean that they can't enforce on those products. What it means is they are choosing not to focus their efforts on enforcing on those products because they're harder to enforce on. If I put a new turbocharger on my truck and that turbocharger doesn't have anything to do with tuning or anything to do with, with increasing the fuel to the motor, which would generate more power. Typically speaking, that turbocharger, depending on which one it is, but I'm talking about, you know, a normal aftermarket turbocharger. I know ATS, so I'll just use that for an example, an ATS 3000 for an example. That turbocharger is probably not going to negatively affect emissions. So the EPA has focused their energy on these defeat devices, which are referred to in the NCI, because they know that they can avoid the litigation associated, generally speaking, avoid the litigation associated with trying to take that all the way to court, because it's much easier to prove that that product or that device violates the Clean Air Act than it is for them to prove that a turbocharger or a fuel pump or a replacement exhaust would negatively affect the emissions, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And it, it ties together a few different things for us. And we've really, you know, I've spent the last couple of weeks <laughs> reading tons of emails and Instagram direct messages and things. And people would ask, they have an older truck, you know, maybe it's a 04 and a half Duramax or an 01 Cummins or a 96 power stroke. And they're, you know, they're diesel enthusiasts, so they're seeing everything that's happening with the new trucks. And one of the most common questions was, does this apply to me? And I, th I think you addressed it as far as what the focus is of this initiative and where they've really honed in on. And it's just, I think that's what has been lacking in the conversation in in you know the the public eye or sphere recently is you know who does it apply to what what's their goal and and I've heard the same thing as as you did where this is just a money grab they're trying to just get as much money as they can and that insight was really good to be able to understand what their focus is and then how it affects us as truck owners or as a shop owner 
or anything like that. And you had mentioned something before that I, I wanted to ask you, just a question that popped up, is what sort of, you know, when the EPA visits a business and you get they get into that process of, hey, we think you've made violations or you did make violations, what does that entail from their perspective and yours and what does it cost? You know, why is it, why is it such a big deal? Why is, you know, why are, why are people concerned about it? What's, what's the teeth behind it, so to speak? Sure. <clears throat> so I think you, you had two questions in there. I'll take them sort of, sort of one by one to the degree that I can talk about truck owners and um, what, whether they, are going to be subject to um, enforcement and you know earlier model versus late yeah. model truck. Yeah. The early the earlier model trucks, I'll say everything up to 2003, and then 2007 for uh, uh, vehicles that have DPF. The earlier model trucks have emissions on them. Okay. The problem with the emissions on the earlier model trucks from the perspective of the EPA is twofold. Number one, those emissions are um, fairly uh, basic, and they are not as effective as you can tell if you see one driving down the street. Say you see a oh, yeah. <laughs> 19, yeah, say you see a 1999. Dodge Cummins driving down the street, you're going to see a puff of black smoke every time you hit the accelerator, right? Say you see a 2018 Dodge Cummins driving down the street, you're not going to, if it's a stock vehicle, you're not going to see one drop of black smoke come out of that thing at all, okay? So there were emissions on those earlier model trucks, but the technology was not up to, the technology was not advanced enough to be able to really prevent that particulate matter from coming out of the tailpipe and really, you know, protect the air. The EPA is less concerned about those vehicles than it is about the newer vehicles for two reasons. Number one, it's less concerned because it, if it were to enforce on owners of those vehicles, it would be impossible. There, there's just too many on the road, and it wouldn't be worth their time. Because even if you've modified those vehicles with tuning or any other modifications, the reality of the matter is they were never that clean to begin with because the technology hadn't caught up. The EPA is focused on those newer vehicles because the technology is caught up on emissions to a point where they can narrow the scope of their enforcement action down to specific parts like the EGR and the DPF in particular that are very easy to determine, and tuning, don't forget tuning, that are very easy to identify as either altered or removed, and so it makes their job easier. So I would say with the earlier model trucks, technically speaking, you are not supposed to modify those. You're not supposed to do anything to affect the emissions, but that's not the focus of the EPA's enforcement efforts. The focus of the EPA's enforcement efforts really has to do with the later model trucks. So I'll, I'll uh, you know, say that I think the EPA is really less focused on those earlier models and more focused on the later models. And then, um, so specifically, the EPA 
regulations in the Clean Air Act apply to all vehicles on the road, all diesels on the road, and all years of diesels on the road, okay? Um, and Patrick, I'm honestly, I got sidetracked on that first question, so I forgot your second question, if you could repeat it for me, if you remember it. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was as far as, and what you mentioned there kind of led into another one that, that a listener had asked us is, and it was, does this apply to everyone? I don't have emissions testing in my county or state, or I have a shop in county or state where there's nothing. And I think he answered it right there was, it applies anywhere in the United States for a vehicle that's on the road. Yeah, it's a, there's, a, there's a bit of confusion with the consumer, with the, our, our normal truck owner, someone like myself, about what, whether the Clean Air Act applies. The Clean Air Act applies in all 50 states to every single person who drives a vehicle, period. Um, California has stricter emissions regulations. Um, and there's been some recent news about rollbacks with the um, with CARB and the uh, state of California with regard to emissions. Those rollbacks do not apply to our industry in particular. So I think that there was some false hope with company owners and truck owners in our industry about, okay, the administration is rolling back these regulations. The administration and and the EPA have gotten way stricter over the course of the last two years than they were before. So because they're way stricter, they are increasing their enforcement pursuant to this memo that was issued in June. Now, the new California rollbacks don't apply to our industry in particular or the, this topic that we're talking about today in particular because what they do is they say – that California does not have the constitutional authority to create stricter emission standards than the federal government. Okay, that sounds good on its face, right? Sounds like, you know, the state of California is a bunch of liberal people and all they want to do is take away our weed whackers and our diesel trucks. <laughs> uh, that may be true, practically true, for sure, but the the recent rule in the recent litigation is not saying that. All it's saying is that California cannot create stricter emission standards than the rest of the country. Well, guess what? The EPA and the federal government have really strict emissions standards anyway. And anything that we're talking about today that would violate California law would also violate federal law. So it doesn't matter. And I hate to say that because I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting some good news from the federal government and from the EPA and from the president, frankly, but it doesn't seem like that's on the horizon anytime soon. And I don't think that people should anticipate that that's coming down the road because the position of the EPA as it stands right now with this new rule that they initiated in June is that the regulations are actually getting stricter, not more lenient. So that's something to keep in mind. I'm so glad you touched on that because I gotten a message and somebody sent, it was a link to a news article with that exact thing. And they were hopeful. They're like, oh, things are going back to the way they were. And I wanted you to address it. And you did, 
it just, you know, in our conversation of what does that mean? And I think that's kind of how we transition from some of these topics into, you know, the future. And especially, I would say on the shop owner manufacturer side of it is what do you anticipate or see that the future looks like? What are, what are some things, and I'm sure people that are listening are going to have specific questions for you, but I mean, it, it generally speaking in a generality is what's the process forward? You know, is it, how can, how can this industry that we're all a part of and enjoy, how, how does it merge past this? Is it, you know, I know, I know it's expensive for, for someone to, you know, a business owner to, to, to fight this or, you know, to, to go into litigation with it. Nobody wants to do that. So I think everyone's looking for an answer of what do we do? How do we, how do we do things, you know, so we don't have to go through this? Yeah, I'm happy to address that. And I've been working closely with the EPA um, enforcement officers for probably about three and a half or four years or so. And usually what I do when I talk to an enforcement um, officer or someone who's in compliance with the EPA is I talk to them about the specific case that I'm handling at that time. Um, And then I talk to them a little bit about... um, you know, what is going on sort of off the record, what's Mm -hmm. going on with regard to their enforcement efforts. And even though I don't always agree with the EPA and I don't always agree with the position of the compliance officers with the EPA, I do generally find them to be very intelligent and very uh, knowledgeable about the industry, maybe not to the level of a shop owner, but uh, at least to the level of somebody who's very well-versed in what is going on in the industry. And they give me some inside information. They tell me, you know, um, what kind of areas they're targeting, whether they're targeting tuning or hard parts. Um, And, you know, we have a a bit of a rapport, for lack of a better term, which has helped me in my relationship with the EPA and helped me advocate for my clients because they know that I'm, generally speaking, going to be a reasonable attorney who's just trying to get from point A to point B and help my clients out as, you know, the most they can. So before I talk about the future and where I see this going, I'll give the listeners on your podcast a a little primer on what the enforcement, um, what the enforcement process looks like. If the EPA believes that you are violating the Clean Air Act, what they'll do is they will issue what's called a request for information or an RFI. The RFI is going to ask you for a bunch of information that relates and pertains to parts that you've sold or they think that you've sold, which um, could be violating parts. And under the Clean Air Act, that company is required by law um, under the subpoena power issued by the President of the United States and the legislation um, to provide that information. If they review that information, which usually takes a while, usually takes anywhere from two months to ten months, depending on how busy they are, and they determine that you have violated the Clean Air Act based on what you've sold, then they will issue what's called a notice of violation, and they will specify the number of violations that a seller, whether it's a wholesale uh, a retailer, whether it is a manufacturer, whether it is a small shop, 
whether it is a large shop, anyone who gets the RFI, they will identify the number of violations that they believe that you have incurred. And when they do that, the um, I'll say one thing. I don't care if anyone in this industry hires me or not. If you get an RFI or you didn't notice a violation, you need to contact an attorney, period. Because if you give them information that they're not entitled to, they will use it against you and they will give you additional fines. And if you give them information that is not worded or described in the right way, your fines could be considerably higher than they otherwise would. So if you get an RFI or a notice of violation, contact an attorney who has dealt with this before. Like I said, I don't care if it's me or someone else, that's just to protect the shop owner. Um, when you get the notice of violation, what usually happens is they specify a number of products that you've sold. They give you an idea of what that fine may be. And then you have to, through your lawyer, go back to the EPA and say, here's why I don't owe that much money and negotiate back and forth with them to try to get to a reasonable settlement on the violations that you have. If you don't do that, and if you have a very high number of violations, the Clean Air Act provides specifically that they can refer that shop owner to the Department of Justice for a criminal prosecution, and they can convene a grand jury in any federal district they choose, and they can move forward with a criminal charge against the individual or the company or both. Now, does that happen very often? No, it does not. And does that mean that you're going to jail? No, it does not. But it is a piece of leverage that the EPA uses in order to get back to what I was talking about earlier in this podcast, which is they want companies and individuals to stop selling these products, first and foremost, okay? So you get that notice violation, and then you're sort of in the EPA's crosshairs, and then you need probably some help to be able to get from point A to point B so that you don't go out of business and you can get into compliance with the Clean Air Act. With regard, specifically, Patrick, to your question on the future of this industry and the future of the EPA enforcement efforts, my opinion, based on the behavior of the current administration and the EPA, is that the enforcement efforts are going to continue to get worse over the course of time based on the NCI that they issued in June. And I hate to say that because I really think that our industry is being uh, singled out, for lack of a better term, but the EPA has got substantial legal um, basis to be able to move forward with whatever enforcement actions they think are going to be necessary. So I think that what's going to happen is the um, industry with regard to aftermarket defeat devices is going to continue to be in the crosshairs of the EPA. 
I think that the enforcement actions are going to increase, and I think that EPA is going to keep their foot on the pedal um, until they believe that they have this situation under control. And I don't know when that will be. I don't know if that means two years or five years or ten years. And I don't know how that's going to change the market for people who buy these products legitimately for a legitimate race use or a legitimate, um, you know, approved use by the EPA. But they, I don't think that the EPA is going to change their opinion of whether or not these products violate the Clean Air Act. So what I've seen happening in the industry, which I think is a great thing, and I'm sure, Patrick, you and your listeners have seen this as well, is people are trying to get compliant. People yeah. meaning companies. They are trying to get compliant. And the way that they're doing that, I've seen some great things happening recently with regard to people protecting themselves. They are creating emissions compliant tunes. They are creating tunes which are able to perform and function with all the emissions products on the vehicle. They are creating <clears throat> turbochargers and fuel pumps which are work with EGR. They are creating bigger DPFs, uh, DPFs that can handle additional particulate and they can still produce the power that people are getting used to in the industry. And I really think that that's the future. I think what we have in our industry is a bunch of highly intelligent people who don't want to break the law in general. And I think that our industry is going to adapt to the EPA's um, new regulations and their new compliance initiative by saying, okay, we still have a market for people out there who want power, and we have a market for people out there who want better fuel economy and all the benefits that go along with, you know, non-factory vehicles or aftermarket application to vehicles. And so we're going to figure out a way to make that happen with all the emissions, uh, all the emissions parts on the vehicle so that we can not be breaking the law and we can still make money. And that's the direction I've seen the industry head in. I know there's going to be a, a group of our listeners who are either shop owners or businesses that they're going to have specific questions for you. And and I wanted to ask you as far as if somebody you know, wants to reach out to you, talk with you, maybe they've gotten one of those notices, maybe they haven't, maybe they're just, you know, have questions. What's the best way for someone listening to be able to contact you, get you a message and be able to start a conversation? Yeah. So um, first of all, uh, like I said, I think I consider this to be my industry as well as the industry of my clients. So um, it's something I'm clearly very passionate about, being a truck owner and being someone who's been doing this kind of since the very beginning. Um, so I'm happy to talk to any listener um, or anyone who has questions um, based on the, the you know, conversation that you and I have had today. Um, best way to reach me is to send me an email, and my email is Stuart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, at Hassan Cables, which is my law firm, H-A-S-S-A-N-C-A-B-L-E-S.com. 
Our website is www.hassancables.com. And, um, you know, I would ask the listeners to exercise a little bit of patience, oh, uh, sorry about that, a little bit of patience uh, with regard to me being able to get back to them because I assume I'm going to have a lot of people who want to talk. Um, so I will get back to you as soon as I can based on um, whatever the content of the email is. And if I don't get back to you, just, you know, send me a reminder or something like that. But, um, but if you send me an email and you've gotten an RFI or a notice of violation, I'm happy to talk to you. And the most important takeaway I have is that you guys need a lawyer. Trying to negotiate with the EPA without a lawyer is a nightmare, and they will try to take advantage of you. I've seen it firsthand. And like I also said earlier in the podcast, it does not matter one bit to me if that lawyer is me or someone else in the industry. There are dozens and dozens of great attorneys out there who really understand this industry well, and they understand the Clean Air Act, and they can help. So get a lawyer. I know it's expensive, and I know that you guys probably haven't budgeted for an EPA compliance letter or a compliance initiative to come through the doors of your company. But I can promise you that at the end of the day, if you're under enforcement, you will get your you will your attorney will pay for himself based on a reduction in fines or uh, some other argument that is going to get any monetary amount down that you that you owe. So you guys can reach out to me my email anytime. I'm on my computer all day. You can ask my wife. She hates it. But <laughs> the, the, the bottom line is that, uh, that I am really passionate about my job, and I take it very seriously, and I am very um, personally connected to this industry. And so because of those reasons, I'm willing to help. I appreciate your time today, Stuart, and, and answering the questions our listeners had that I had and providing some clarity and some facts and information that – really help us see the the larger picture so it was it was fantastic to to chat and 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 learn more and look forward to chatting with you again and and uh you know hopefully it's uh maybe there's a different topic maybe we talk about your duramax or (laughs) what you're doing to it or something but (laughs) contrary to popular belief i don't really like talking about this uh this topic because it usually means that people are in trouble or they're going to owe money um I would be happy to come back on your uh, podcast anytime you want me. Um, I uh, appreciate you reaching out to me. And, um, you know, it's always great to talk to you. It's always great to hear any kind of feedback from the industry or anybody who's in the industry. And so um, I just appreciate the invitation. I'm, I'm glad that you thought that I was knowledgeable enough to be able to invite onto your podcast. I hope that the information that I've given you guys has been helpful. And I am, I'm around. So if you guys want to talk or you want to send me an email, then I'm available and, and I really would like to help. Don't forget, Diesel fans, make sure wherever you hear this podcast, if it's on iTunes or you see it on YouTube, make sure that uh, you, know, you send us a comment or, or a message or email or whatever's the most convenient for you. And give us feedback. Let us know how we're doing. Let, let us know what you want to hear or if there's a, a certain guest on or a guest in a particular part of the diesel industry where you want to hear their thoughts, let us know. You guys are driving this podcast. You guys are, are helping us make these episodes and provide you guys with 
what you want to hear. And, and we take that very seriously and we want to continue to do that. Till next time, keep the shiny side up.